Welcome to The Big Idea. I'm Douglas Kerr. Our big idea this week is a place. Dunhuang, in the modern Gansu province of China, was a frontier garrison town at an oasis on the southern Silk Road, where that road intersected with the ancient road leading from India via Lhasa to Mongolia. In the past, Dunhuang had a great strategic and commercial importance. It was fought over by Han Chinese, Tibetans, Uyghurs and Mongols. But it's well famous today as a spiritual, artistic and touristic site. At Dunhuang, the Buddhist community carved out a series of caves or grottos, which were originally used for meditation, but later became places of worship and pilgrimage. These so-called Caves of a Thousand Buddhas contain examples of Buddhist art spanning a thousand years and comprising paintings, artefacts, sculptures and documents that make Dunhuang the most important treasury of Buddhist art in the world. We're going to talk today about how these treasures were assembled, what they mean and represent, and what the future holds for them. And my guests are Dr. Mimi Gates, a scholar of Chinese art, former director of the Seattle Art Museum, and now chair of the Dunhuang Foundation, and Dr. Yiwan Kun, also an art historian, and Associate Professor of Fine Arts at the University of Hong Kong. Mimi Gates, can I ask you to set the scene for us? When you arrive as a tourist or a scholar at Dunhuang, what do you see? Well, first when you fly in, you see an oasis in the midst of the Chinese Gobi Desert. So you see trees and greenery. And if you're driving to the Mogao Caves, which means peerless, caves without equal. Mogao Caves, okay. You go over, you drive up a long uh, road, and you see in front of you a cliff face that's almost a mile long. And into that cliff face are carved 735 caves that span a 1,000 years in date, from the 4th to the 14th century, and over 500 are decorated. Goodness. Okay. Now, this is far away from the, the town. This is just, as it were, in the middle of nowhere. About nine kilometers outside. And I mentioned the Silk Road. Is there a road? Well, actually, the Silk Road were the trade routes, multiple routes that connected China to the Mediterranean world, it actually, they went through Central Asia to India, mm-hmm. to Persia and the Middle East, and all the way to the Mediterranean world. And actually, they then went to Tibet, to Mongolia. There were a whole network of roads, of paths that people traveled, traders, monks. So these merchants and, and travelers traveling along the Silk Road or Silk Roads would see a line of cliffs in the cliffs, entrances to caves. And, but these are not natural caves. These are artificial caves. No, it's, right? a, it's a composite rock scarf, a, a long cliff face made up of small stones in a matrix. And a river actually carved this cliff. In front of it, you can see in the summer, it's almost always dry, but carved this cliff face. And then monks, cave builders built these 
in order to create merit for a better rebirth in the afterlife if you look at it in a Buddhist context. Could you just take us into one of your favorite caves and tell us what's to be found there? Then I'll ask you one okay. to choose a cave. Okay. I, will, I will also mention just one thing I will add to my description Please. of the site is Cave 96 is a huge Tang Dynasty Buddha set into the cliff face, and outside is a pagoda, a nine-storied pagoda, painted red. So you see that originally many of the caves actually had superstructures in front of them, many of which are gone. But you see this nine-storied pagoda, which is a in the cliff face. So it's not just caves opening in, in the cliff face, but there are some... Actual structures, buildings. There. Well, originally, actually, there were temples in front, mm-hmm. monasteries. But now most of those ha- have gone, although they, most of those have gone. And the, the Buddha that you described is carved into the cliff? Yes. How big? Uh, 35 meters high. Good. Now, you, I interrupted cave, you. You're cave 285. 285. 285 is the earliest dated cave. It has inscriptions that date it to 538, 539, <clears throat> to the Western Way period. And you walk in, and artistically, it's magical. It's, the ceiling is covered with Chinese mythological figures. And what kind of light is there? Would there have been candles, lamps in this cave? Well, or oil lamps and uh, that type of the cave's you know, were originally the whole question of how they were used and what was the light like is still a matter of some okay. debate. Okay. But this this cave has a program that ranges from the celestial to Buddhist figures and bodhisattvas, and then down to yakshas and sort of lower creatures. But there also are stories painted on the wall of the caves. Every inch of the caves is covered with wall painting. So if this were TV, you would see Mimi Gates gesticulating um, from top to bottom. So the, the celestial images are, are on the top. Is this right. There's, there's a – the, the ceiling is filled with flying and it, the, the artistic style of this cave is extraordinary. It has a lightness and a dynamism – that is singular, and you have the thunder god, and and the wind god, and Fushi Inuwa who created the universe, and it's just at a period where Buddhism is becoming Sinified. Is you see a lot of influences from a Chinese cultural context, and then as you go down, you see a central figure of Maitreya Buddha. Which is the Buddha of the future. A painting. A a sculpture. A sculpture, okay. Set into a central niche on the west wall in the back. And two uh, meditating monks on either side. And then along the south wall is the story of the 500 robbers. And there are five robbers that represent. And the... Robbers had been captured and blinded, and they prayed to the Buddha. The Buddha appeared to them, restored their sight, and they converted to Buddhism. 
fantastic. And this is represented as a story. As sort of a like story. In, like, a, like a cartoon, is it, with different well, no, sort of frames? No, I or mean, a, just, it's actually it's a, a single like a, competition, a uh, continuous okay. composition with different episodes of the story depicted on the wall. And, and, and when you describe this painting, is it... Uh, is is the whole surface covered? It's not sort of individual paintings in frames. No, it's, it's, it's just the a continuous, okay. just the whole surface is covered. They actually, on top of the stone, put a layer of mud, mixed mud and straw, and then a layer of very smooth mud, mm-hmm. and then a, a very fine white layer, and then painted in pigments. And this cave has a lapis lazuli blue that is so striking that dominates the composition. And uh, in addition, the 500 robbers on the west wall, on the the right-hand side, you see donor figures, you see bodhisattvas. It's The cave is extraordinary. Um, And there are meditation cells at the bottom. What's a meditation cell? It's a small opening mm-hmm. in which a monk could have sat and meditated. Exactly how these were used, we're not 100% sure because there's no written record. So you've described the, the, where the ceiling and, and the walls of this cave. Was the stuff in the middle of the cave or is this where the meditation cells would be? The meditation cells were actually on the sides. Okay on the north wall and the south wall. And the center in this cave, there are some caves that have a uh, central column or uh, a central structure in them, Mm -hmm. but not this particular cave. This cave is very wide and open and spacious. Thank you very much. Yuan has been waiting patiently (laughs) at the threshold of her cave. Which one are you going to talk about? Mimi's description was so fantastic. It's hard to beat that one. I'm going to choose one which is called it's Cave 254, um, very similar period. But um, as what Mimi was describing, there are some, some caves which has the central pillar inside. And this is one of them. So when you go in, there you come into two different types of roof if you were to look up. The first part is a gable. A roof, so it's slightly pointed, and it's a flat roof. And when in that inner section, there's a central pillar, and that central pillar in in a niche, there's the Maitreya, which is made of a sculptural form. And then, as with the description before, this entire cave is covered with images. So you're looking at the roof is all covered as well. You've got lots of different scenes on the walls. And each one of these scenes correlate to the space and where it belongs. So you will have at the middle scene, you have scenes to do with stories of um, related to Buddha. And then at the bottom, you get more demons and donor figures as well. So there's a particular logic to house space. There's a hierarchy. There's a hierarchy. Um, um, within the space and which wall goes on to what. The central pillar itself is a really interesting structure and there's a lot of debate about what this is used for. But one of the most common um, reason that's often given is that it's used almost as if it is a stupa, uh, a reliquary, where people would then walk around the out around it, circumambulate so it as a form of ritual, a performance of ritual itself. A lot more gesturing going on. <laughs> it's, <laughs> round it's, and hard, round. Okay. it's hard to describe no, that, all of that, this that, in, go, go without on. using one's yeah. hands. 
this, so this pillar, is this a built thing or is that yes. just part of the original rock? They was carved that? it out okay. of this. Uh, it also has this uh, incredible colour scheme. It's If you think about coming in, you know, the yellow dunes of the sand and you're coming into something which is so vibrant in colour. A lot of it has actually oxidised. So what would have been once fleshy colour has now turned a black colour. So the colour that we're seeing today is not quite the same as the colour we would have seen then. But nonetheless, it's enough to give you an idea of something which is visually very powerful. One of the reasons why I love this cave um, partly is because it really captures in the many different types of style. You've got Chinese elements, you've got these Indian style, you've got Central Asian element, and it really just captures that Dunhuang is this incredible nexus of contact and exchanges, and you see it in the pictorial arts. So that it's actually very interesting. Can, and, can I ask you, yes. um, since you're talking about these different aesthetic elements that, yes. that go into the, the pictorial design of the thing, does that mean, sorry, this is an ignorant question, but does that mean that different people are coming in and adding things, or is it that this is a single style that incorporates these different traditions? It, it's, yes, um, <clears throat> One of the things we actually don't know as much as we would like to know about things from this earlier period. We have much better records and sketches and things from the 8th, 9th century onwards. In the earlier period, we have less. But what we do know by tracing, because along these various different silk routes in Central Asia, there are other caves and earlier caves. And we can see that their style of painting is related to what's happening in Dunhuang. And it's very likely that artisans from these areas would have actually also travelled to Dunhuang and would have worked as part of a workshop production. And then there is, within this one cave, it's all made at the same time. You can tell it's because it's of the way that the programme works. It's very cleverly designed so that everything registers what else is going on in the rest of the space. So it's all made by one group of people, but this group of people would most likely have been a diverse group of people. This is also a cave which is made during the time of the Northern Way. So these are non-Chinese, uh, Han Chinese people. They're Torbas. Um, so uh, where, where do they come from? North. Right. They speak a language that's believed to be Turkic and proto-Mongolian, whatever that may be. This is what scholars have, have decided. Okay. But they're non-Han Chinese, and but they were very important for the spread of Buddhism in China in general, because they also brought a lot of that art down further into um, other parts of China, Lumen, Luoyang area in particular. So you have this great intercultural diversity, which was very important for the spread of Buddhism and Buddhist art in general. Uh, but the other thing which I really like about this, this cave is that you can see how the artisans who were making this is so aware of the subject matter um, and what it means to depict these. So the Buddhist figures and the Buddha figures are so serene. They have, they have this very calm serenity about them. But the stories then that surrounding them are full of life and energy and dynamic movement. We were talking about the 500 robbers, which is a great story. There's another one, one of my favorite ones, um, a Jataka story, is of a prince who came across these hungry tigers who was too hungry. She couldn't feed her, her cubs. And so he decided to sacrifice himself. But, you know, she's too hungry to even hunt him down. So she, he jumps up a cliff right in front of her, commits suicide, and so that he, the cubs and the tigress can feed on her, on him. But it, the scene of death is it's very dramatic mm. because they knew what they were doing. I mean, this is it. I mean, the cost of human sacrifice is a worthy thing. And they have that sense of drama in these stories. So that's also part of it. So 
there's a sense of drama in where there needs to be drama and where there needs to be peace and serenity that also capture that using very different stylistic techniques. I think you, you need to look at them as what was the original context in which they were made? And they were devotional objects, the whole idea of gaining merit in this life, merit for yourself, for your deceased parents, or for all sentient beings. It could be any of that. Um, the artisans who made the cave, the, the donors who paid to commission it, that was all what much of this was about and about the whole Buddhist system of belief. So. The, the, here comes another crude question. The, the, a person comes up to these cliffs. Perhaps it's a donor. Okay, might might be a rich person who is very pious. Um, in deciding to create the cave and then to have it decorated in a particular way, this person, let's assume it's a man, is saying to himself, "This is a place where I can come. My, my friends can come in order to." do our devotions like we, we, don't, we don't really know all, all of the details of that we do know generally that donors had a great deal to say about the program of a cave mm -hmm. but in these early caves like 285 there actually it was a whole group of people uh, who are depicted on the wall and who were the donors for it right. exactly exactly you know how it was used it's very likely I and mean, we don't know the name of the artists but we do do know that the monks probably served as intermediaries between the donors and the artists and are we would we assume then that the the ex executants of these things the artists or artisans there we might describe them as professionals do you think we simply or, or don't know that. enough about the <clears throat> artists um, themselves. What we do have in later, um, we've discovered there's a, there's a library cave, uh, which was discovered in the 20th century. And inside this library cave, we've dis there are contracts uh, that we've seen, and we can see how they were paid. Um, and you can see that, our that they were doing it as a service as well. So that may give us some idea that maybe this has to do with workshop. We also do know, though, that at certain stages, they also operated because at certain times, Dunhuan was under a particular power base, which almost acted as a form of academy, almost a painting academy system, similar to what is going on in the court in that the artists or the artisans had titles as well. So at different periods, you will get different type of painting practices. But no matter what, because it's so carefully organized and because there are very important religious um, sites, you do know that there had to be more than one person involved. There had to be more. There had to be a workshop sort of structure okay. for all things to be able to work and process it properly through. So we know Pro that Professor Lee mentions the library cave, which is actually a spectacular story. It's one of the most stunning discoveries um, of one of the largest repository of traditional Chinese materials. How, how was this discovered? How was it in, lost? in June of nineteen hundred. <laughs> A Taoist monk, he had, was self-appointed guardian of the caves. And they basically had been abandoned for about four centuries. And the fact that they still existed, partly due to their, the aridity of the climate and partly due to the remote geographical location during that period mm -hmm. of time, he noticed a crack in the wall and light knocked on the wall. And he realized 
that there was a hollow space behind. I love these stories. <laughs> and he oh, went back. Better. He went back. At, he went back at night with one worker, and he punched through the painting, and he found some forty-two thousand objects, uh, uh, mainly rolled-up bundles of manuscripts, paintings, embroideries, preparatory sketches. Pounces. The oldest printed book in the world is found there. The oldest yes. printed book is found there. This is just what a treasure it is. Inside. It's, it's dated May 11th, 868. Yes. And it's a Diamond Sutra. And it's the world's earliest complete woodblock printed book that's Fantastic. dated. So what is this place? Is a storeroom, a, a library, or what? Treasury? Th- that's a big question. Is to, was it a monastery's library? Was it a storm? Why was it closed? Was it closed because of invasion? Was it enclosed because it was simply full? So scholars are still, that's one, a very hot scholarly topic. And the fact is we may never know. What? So these, if you're talking about paintings, they're probably not movable, but documents can be moved. Are, are these documents dispersed or are they kept in yes. where they were found? Well, after it was discovered... This was also at the time when we had European explorers around in that area. I knew it. (laughs) (laughs) You saw this coming, didn't you? Uh, One of them was a Hungarian-British explorer, Stein, who who managed to procure, I don't know exactly how much, but a significant amount of the documents Mm -hmm. from there. And they're now at the British Museum. Okay. And then shortly after he arrived, Paul Pellio from France, who was a sinologist. And so he was actually able to read a lot of the material. So he carefully selected what sort of documents that okay. uh, he wanted to take back. And those are now in Paris as mm-hmm. well. So, yes, uh, they're sort of dispersed now. There's still, there's some, still, in- still some on, on site. Uh, well, actually, there's some in China and the Dunhuang yeah. Academy. Academy. The Dunhuang Academy is an extraordinary organization that it oversees the site. It's like a mini university. It includes scholars as well as security, admissions people, and uh, they do have in their storage, they do have uh, some of the objects from the library cave, including some Buddha sutras, etc. And some will a few were exhibited in Hong Kong last year. That's right. The uh, hist- history, the Heritage Museum. We mm-hmm. had a big show uh, where they also replicated some of the caves as right. well as some of the manuscripts as well and sh- showed some and of the manuscripts. the Getty Museum in Los Angeles from May to September next year will have uh, some uh, 23 Mm. Uh, actually, not twenty two, forty three of China. the objects, including paintings and embroideries, really? mm. and preparatory sketches and ritual diagrams. Okay, book your tickets now, um, Mimi Gates. I mentioned that you are the chair of the Dunhuang Foundation. Can you tell us what that does? The Dunhuang Foundation uh, is an uh, organization in the United States that really is an advocate for. Dunhuang and works closely with the Dunhuang Academy in terms of how can you how can you ensure that the past, present, and future are as positive as they possibly can be. And we're looking at preservation and conservation 
and actually uh, Dunhuang is the National Center for Wall Painting Conservation in China, and that's a, a really wonderful story. Also, how can you assure that it's a center for creativity and for scholarship, a place where artists come today so it's not only a place of the past but a place of the present and the future? And I should add also here that artists in the 20th century um, have actually visited Dunhuang. Um, Zhang Daitian, who's one of the great Chinese um, ink painters, uh, one of the many people in, uh, in the 20th century who visited Dunhuang to seek inspiration and to make copies of the paintings from Dunhuang, it's always remained a place of great creativity and potential for creativity. So lots of artists do visit that place as well. So it's it's there's something to offer for everyone there. But as an art historian, I just love... You, it baffles me that there can be one site over a thousand years that has so many records where you can trace the development of things in one place. It's almost like a candy shop for art historians. We think 45,000 square meters of wall painting and over 2,000 sculptures all in one place. Is, what is extraordinary is that it survived. Is that because of the climate? Well, I, the climate and I think the fact that it was also somewhat removed from a lot of the turmoil mm. of central China. Mm. Yeah, that was a big, you know, um, it's it has been a place where you've had a lot of different people fighting for control of this particular area. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that so in 755 there was a huge civil war in China and they called back a lot of the soldiers from the west so it became a site where they didn't have that many people and so Tibet who had been slowly trying to take over some of the various towns along the Silk Road wanted laid siege on Dunhuang for 10 years and then took over Dunhuang for about 70 years and thereafterwards it kind of remained a sort of semi-autonomous state mm-hmm. until Genghis Khan came along but it was during that history of it when, when it was occupied by people who are non-Han Chinese or semi-autonomous states that what was going on in Han China was also or central China there were the Buddhist persecution in the 9th century and it where a lot of temples had to close down monks and nuns were forced to become lay people and a lot of Buddhist art was actually melted down to become coins so actually its survival has also been part for the fact that it's been removed but it's been occupied by people who actually are devout Buddhists mm. as well mm. from, and they've also helped to protect it during times of unrest. You've told us a lot about what we know about Dunhuang. What, what are some of the things we still don't know? I think there, 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 there's just an infinite <laughs> number of subjects that you can, you can explore. Between the materials from the library cave and mm. the art in situ in the caves... You have the only complete artistic environment of pre-modern China. That's a scholar named Sarah Fraser uh, has yes. written it at some length about that. But how there, there are questions of how are the caves used? You asked me that question. And that, in fact, ritualistically, yeah. mm. um, you know, we assume that meditation, circumambulation, those were all part – and there undoubtedly were people, you know, saying the name of Buddhas and, you know, it various forms of Buddhist worship, but exactly how, and they were dark. Yes. Yeah, so One scholar has written art in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> and art he, yes. <laughs> so, you know, there, there are all sorts of fascinating questions. Precisely when did cave building begin? We think the mid-fourth century. But that uh, that still – who were the artists? Where did they come from? 
what role did the monks play? Who were the donors? And some of these we know we have partial answers to. I'm going to put a stop to your, your questions because we are out of time now. Thank you both very much indeed. Uh, Mimi Gates and Kuni Wan, many thanks. And thank you for listening. <laughs>